Our passage this morning is a passage in which we see two scenes in which Jesus is being opposed, but we could have expected that. We're looking at Mark chapter 2. And Mark chapter 2, all the way to 3 verse 6, is a collection of five scenes in which Jesus is opposed by the peoples and by the scribes and by the Pharisees. That's what's happening in this section in Mark's gospel. This morning, uh, we are in Mark chapter 2, and we'll begin at verse uh, 13. Now, little theologians, thank you also for being here. If you could simply draw for me the tools of a doctor, the tools of a doctor. You'll see why when we hit the word physician in our passage, that's a doctor. Well, again, Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. Would you please join me in prayer? Father, our brother Moses tells us that your word is life. It's our life. And we tend to treat your word as more like dessert, as something that's extra, unnecessary, or at least can uh, uh, be something we can uh, write off every now and again. But this is our life. Peter says that uh, we are to long for the pure spiritual milk. That's about your word as well. We thank you for your word. Speak to us by your Holy Spirit this morning through your word. But then as we go from this place, would you give us a great desire to long for your word? It is our life. We thank you for being with us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you look at Mark chapter 2, verse 13 with me? He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, uh, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is the word of our Lord. You know, I'm not uh, very athletic myself and don't uh, follow 
uh, a lot of uh, athletic events, but everyone in this room knows that the breaking of a world record is a significant event. In fact, the whole point of a world record is that it's uh, the kind of record that's so significant that it's not likely to be broken. And when it's broken, well, it's a big deal. I know enough, enough about athletics to know that. So if a, if a world record is broken, that's a big deal. But what if a world record is completely decimated, absolutely destroyed? And this is a passage that's about expectations. The expectations that we have on, on Jesus, the expectations we have for our own lives in terms of that, what, that which makes our lives peaceful, fulfilling. But the gospel comes in such a way that it's not merely uh, breaking that world record, not merely uh, pushing our expectations slightly to the side. No, the gospel does more than that. It's crushing a record it's actually taking that world record and making it completely and utterly pointless so, uh, so uh, powerfully as it been destroyed. And so if you think of uh, the breaking of a world record, uh, if someone breaks a world record, indeed, uh, there's a great deal of happiness, uh, there's celebration. But if the world record is, well, destroyed utterly, there's not merely happiness, there's awe. We're staggered. It's not simply a party of celebration. It's something in, well, an entirely different category. Imagine that, uh, a party beyond a party. The reason that image is actually important in this passage is because this passage has two scenes in which there's a great deal of uh, partying or celebrating. Uh, at first, there's an uh, actual uh, party or some kind of celebratory event that takes place in a person's home. And then in the next scene, uh, there is a reference to uh, a great party that would take place at a wedding. And what we need to see in this passage is that Jesus is continuing in his preaching and teaching ministry, but what we're getting to see is how remarkably different this teaching is from any other teaching. How it is that the message of Jesus is a message that crushes every other message, makes them indeed look foolish and pathetic. And Jesus has been uh, teaching, and part of his teaching is that the time is fulfilled. Now is a great and seminal moment. The kingdom of God has now broken into the world closer than ever. It's here. And as Jesus is teaching... He's commanding us to repent, to put away all human attempts to follow God, to put away all human attempts to uh, be fulfilled in life, to achieve peace, to achieve reconciliation with God. Put those away and believe. Believe in the gospel. Place your trust for peace, for reconciliation with God, for all of life's fulfillment. Place that trust in me. Repent and believe. The time is here. And then what following Jesus is like is uh, something that we've given pictures of up to this point in Mark's gospel. Uh, following Jesus is uh, a life in which spiritual oppression is completely vanquished. We see uh, Jesus overturning the spiritual world. Uh, following Jesus is a life in which uh, my uncleanness is replaced with the cleanness of Jesus. His cleanness uh, covers me. 
The life of following Jesus is a life in which uh, physical ailments of multiple kinds is actually uh, removed far from me. Uh, Jesus is the one who has the power to heal. Uh, Following Jesus is living a life in which all sin is forgiven. And because of that, uh, guilt and shame are banished. Uh, Following Jesus is a life in which his power becomes my own power. I live because he lives. Well, in this passage, uh, there's much for uh, non-believers, but there's a special message here for believers with regards to uh, what the gospel is and how this message of Jesus works. The good news of the gospel is that God's grace absolutely destroys any contrary means for attaining closeness to God. The gospel of God's grace destroys any other means. And so you hear that for someone who's not a believer, this is an immediate challenge to them. All of your uh, attempts for peace in this life, all of your attempts uh, to be reconciled on any kind of divine or cosmic level, all of those attempts, well, they're nothing. In fact, they're uh, worse than nothing. They uh, lead you further from that peace which you say that you seek. But there's still a message here for those who are believers that the gospel of God's grace so absolutely destroys every contrary means for attaining closeness to God that that actually informs how Christians live day to day. That as we uh, live the Christian life, we're we're constantly uh, tempted to uh, mix uh, our plans with the gospel. We're constantly uh, tempted to have that which our affections desire while at the same time thinking that this is what God desires for me. We're always mixing our own plans with God's plans, our own gospel, which is a contrary or different gospel with the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you're a Christian, you feel that, you sense that in your daily life. So there's a message Uh, For both Christians and non-Christians in this passage, uh, the good news uh, is that God's grace destroys any contrary means of attaining closeness with him. And Mark tells us this by giving us two scenes from the life of Jesus. Uh, One in which he is eating with very unexpected people, and one in which he is eating when fasting is expected. Eating with unexpected people, and then eating when fasting is expected is expected. The role of expectation in this passage is actually very important. Well, verses 13 through 17, eating with unexpected people. The calling of Levi is actually very similar to the calling of the other four disciples in uh, Mark chapter 1. The similarity probably tells us that what Mark shares with us about the calling of Levi, just as the calling of the other four, is that uh, this is more of a summary. It's not uh, everything that happened. It's not every discussion that Jesus had with Levi before this moment. Jesus is walking along the dominant feature of uh, Capernaum, and that is the Sea of Galilee. And he passes by and he sees the disciple, or the one who will be a disciple. And then, uh, of course, in this scene, just like the four, uh, or the scene of the four other disciples earlier, uh, we get mention of a dad, Levi. He's the son of Alphaeus. And this, by the way, if you didn't know already, is Matthew Levi. Uh, This is the writer of Matthew's gospel. 
And the disciple, uh, just like uh, the four fishermen in Mark chapter 1, the disciple is actually plying his trade at the very moment. Isn't that interesting? Uh, he is uh, at his uh, booth or at his table. He's, uh, he's at work, and his work is a tax collector. And, and many suspect that uh, because his uh, table of business is near the Sea of Galilee, some suspect that he's the kind of tax collector that specializes in taxing uh, industry, the fishing industry in particular. But maybe he is a, a customs and trade kind of tax collector. I mean, really, what we, what we should know about a tax collector is that a tax collector is someone who works for the local ruler, who would be Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas, by the way, is the one who imprisons John the Baptist. And so he really works for Herod Antipas, and Herod Antipas works for uh, Rome. From the perspective of Rome, uh, a good tax collector uh, would be the responsibility of Herod, Herod uh, Antipas, the, the uh, local leader. He's the one who's supposed to appoint the tax collector. And from the perspective of Rome, they want a tax collector who is uh, mostly honest. Mostly honest. It's assumed that a tax collector is going to skim a little bit of money. But Rome just wants to make sure that the money is uh, coming in. So he needs to be mostly honest, but also from the perspective of Rome, he needs to be the kind of guy who gets local culture. Now, usually tax collectors were natives. Natives understand local culture very well. It's their own culture. And what this means is that if the tax collector is this kind of individual, very low standards other than uh, making sure the money is flowing, but uh, a very uh, uh, high uh, requirement is that he would be a native. And what it means is for the rest of the natives is that, is that they're almost always going to hate this guy. Almost always. Uh, they're going to uh, hate this guy even before he begins taking their money. And the problem is compounded by the fact that the tax collector is skimming. So what they're doing is they're robbing their brothers for the sake of lining their own pockets. And they're doing so with the permission of Rome, which means you're never going to stop them. This is always going to happen. And really, the relationship between the non-collector, non-tax collector natives and the tax collector natives, it's just toxic. It was just uh, universally understood that these guys are the worst of the worst. And it's, it's almost, if we're looking for a present-day example, we really need to think about uh, a double agent who sells secrets to the enemy. That's, that's really what we're looking at when we look at a tax collector. They're infiltrators. And then Jesus says to this individual, follow me. And he rises and he follows but again, just like the calling of the four disciples earlier, there's no dialogue beyond this. Again, there was additional dialogue, but this is what, this is what uh, Mark wants us to see. And then very soon after that, or uh, attached to that in Mark's gospel, uh, there is some kind of party or an event in verse 15. It's likely uh, an event that takes place in this individual's house, uh, Matthew Levi's house. And the primary focus of this event is very clear to us from the way Mark tells the events of, of uh, this party or gathering. The first uh, focus of Mark is the presence of seedy people. I mean, he tells us that there are tax collectors, which is enough, but also sinners. 
And this word that he uses for sinners in verse 15 is really code word for outsiders to Judaism. uh, It's almost like a grab bag name for anyone who uh, we can uh, associate or categorize simply because they don't like God. And all of them are there. And, and, and it's not just the presence of seedy people that Mark wants us to see. It's also uh, the disregard or seeming disregard that Jesus has for the kind of situation he's in. Jesus, he actually seems very comfortable. They're seedy people, but Jesus is comfortable. Verse 15 says, Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus. And, uh, and we read in verse 16 that Jesus is eating right along with everyone else. James, Jesus, he seems to have no sense of shame with regards to what he's doing. And really, this is Mark's point, isn't it? What Jesus is doing is he is uh, provoking the scribes. Well, the scribes would be the ones who would uh, know that what Jesus is doing is, well, it's something that you really shouldn't be doing, and yet, There he is. He's not only with them, but he's joining with them, participating with them. The scribes would know that there are certain standards for relating with God. You'll never have a relationship with God if you do this kind of stuff. And however, there he is. Now, Jesus offers a reply in verse 17 that's very simple and intensely meaningful at the same time. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so on one level, we can think of the teaching ministry of Jesus being simply this. Jesus is teaching, but in order to communicate that teaching, he's actually waiting for the students to arrive. You know, teaching is like that, isn't it? We can think of school as being like this. Uh, School, after you graduate from high school, uh, can be understood as a rather optional sort of thing. Uh, It can be something that you do. It can be something that you live without. Same thing is true for education, isn't it? You can continue to grow uh, in your education, but it's something that you can really leave out. You kind of have to do something, go out of your way to participate in education. But Jesus says that his mission is the mission of a physician. It's to heal. And as soon as we think about Jesus' mission as a physician rather than a teacher, then we begin to think, well, now wait a minute. Uh, There are some people who desperately need healing from a physician, and yet they're unable to actually come. It's not a matter of not wanting to come, at least not always. They're simply not able. In fact, the word that we see in this passage for well is the word for able. Well, this changes things just a bit, so that on on one level, the mission of Jesus, uh, it is to teach, but, well, it's to teach in a certain way. It's to teach such that the individual is not merely taught, but that the individual is made able to do that which they were unable to do before. And people are not able to come to Jesus or come to the physician always if they're ill, The picture that we got just before this scene was like that, wasn't it? A paralytic was utterly unable to come to Jesus. He actually had to be brought to Jesus. And and we know very well that when things are really, really dire, uh, medically speaking, we need help. We need an ambulance. The word for ambulance comes from uh, walking, moving. When things are really, really dire, 
we're simply not able to get that help that we need. And for situations like that, we need the kind of physician that actually comes to us to help us. Not always can we get ourselves to the hospital. Jesus is not merely teaching. Jesus is a physician. So that's, that's the mission of Jesus on one level. But there's another level to understand the mission of Jesus. And the implication here is quite dramatic. His, mesh, his mission, by definition, is a mission in which he comes near. Nobody is able to save themselves. Jesus is not saying that some are able. He actually uh, gives us a picture then of, of what it means to need Jesus. It's not merely unrighteousness, but actually sin. And sinners are completely unable to go to the physician and to get that help. The physician must come to them, so dire is their need. Well, the implications for this are quite remarkable because it puts all of the ability on Jesus. John the Baptist preached saying what? After me comes he who is mightier than I. And the demon speaking to Jesus in, in 1 verse 24 says, Have you come to destroy us? Because come you have indeed. And the very theme of Mark's gospel is it not the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. He came. Which is excellent because, well, the ones here saving are the ones who are completely unable to go to him. And so if he does not come, there will be no salvation. The tax collectors and sinners of the world, they need a physician to be near to them, to come to them. Uh, anyone who uh, is saved is saved because Jesus has indeed come near to them. The good news of the gospel is that God's grace absolutely destroys uh, any of our ability to come to Jesus. We have no ability. He must come, and he must come near. And yet, we do think that we can come to Jesus on our own terms, don't we? There's a more than a little, little bit of a kernel of our thought in which we think to ourselves, I'm not so bad. I have just a little bit of power to come to Jesus. I'm not as bad, for instance, as the person next to me. I have a bit more power than they do to come to Jesus. Or I'm not so bad, therefore I don't need him to do as much help for me as he does for others. But Jesus tells us, because the gospel tells us, that we are very bad, critically in need. And in fact, if there isn't that ambulance, if there, if there isn't Jesus coming to me, I will never be saved. If he doesn't do everything, I'm lost and without peace forever. I wonder if that expectation feels like an expectation you're familiar with, a thinking that you don't need Jesus all that bad pushing Jesus off to the side. And maybe you're here and you've actually neglected him, and that's exactly what you think. This is not the one for me. But as Christians, we know what this feels like. And we know that oftentimes we can get a bit full of ourselves, and we think, well, I'm not as bad as that person, therefore I don't need quite as much gospel as that person needs. And Jesus, he destroys our expectations. And then he begins to uh, eat when fasting is expected, verses 18 through 22. And the problem here, uh, having to do with fasting, it's, it's really not a problem with uh, keeping up the Old Testament law. That's really not the source of the indictment here. 
Now, the law really only required fasting one day uh, a year. And this is uh, ta- taught us in Leviticus chapter 16. Uh, that's the Day of Atonement, uh, Yom Kippur, which actually begins uh, on the Jewish calendar this evening. One day when the priest would uh, enter the Holy of Holies before the Ark and atone for the sins of the people, that's the day uh, of fasting, just one. And there are certainly other examples of fasting in the Old Testament, but not those uh, specifically prescribed by the Old Testament law in Leviticus 16. But, you know, Jesus does assume that fasting is an appropriate activity for the Christian. He really does. In the Sermon on the Mount, he uh, prescribes the way in which fasting should be done. He knows that fasting will be a part of the disciples' life. In fact, you just look at verse 20 of our passage. There will be a time when fasting is appropriate, but not, not now. If fasting was an ordinary practice, even of the New Testament church, uh, there's uh, fasting that's associated with a prayer, fasting associated with repentance, fasting that's associated with grief, that's a part of the Bible and indeed important in life. Jesus is not being charged here uh, for uh, the, uh, breaking the Old Testament law. But one thing that he is charged for is not doing it as much as other holy people. You see, the Pharisees, they fasted a lot twice a week, minimally, Monday and Thursday. And they also fasted ostentatiously, at least that's what we can derive from the Sermon on the Mount, that they fasted in such a way that everyone would see that they were fasting. They elevated fasting uh, a little bit too highly. And so the problem is uh, really not that Jesus has broken the Old Testament law. Uh, The problem is uh, really not even about theology. The problem is really about expectations and about messaging. In verse 18, uh, they ask, uh, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but yours don't? Uh, Jesus, it would seem, would be holier than those disciples, and yet the expectation is not met. If you really are who you say you are, you're fasting, it really ought to be off the chart, shouldn't it? You're the one who has the power to forgive sins. Your fasting, then, should be off the charts. Your disciples' fasting should be off the charts, but neither is. And so your disciples are discredited, and because you don't correct them, you're discredited as well. You see, you see how the argument goes. Jesus is not meeting their expectations for what holiness looks like and what walking with God looks like. And Jesus is going to respond in a couple of ways. Very quickly, verse 19, he's going to say, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Very, very simple. Absolutely, completely absurd to fast uh, while the uh, wedding is being celebrated. Uh, A wedding celebration lasts a week. Nobody can fast for a whole week. I mean, that alone uh, makes this just absurd. But why should they fast? It's a wedding. It's an absolute affront to the groom and an affront to the bride as well. The statement about the ministry uh, of uh, John the Baptist is really uh, significant for us. You see, uh, Jesus' disciples, uh, or John the, John the Baptist's disciples, they'd be fasting for an obvious reason, wouldn't they? For his release from prison. The fasting, though, is appropriate, but it's not appropriate for Jesus. Remember, John the Baptist is preparing for Jesus. Jesus doesn't have to do everything that John the Baptist and John the Baptist's disciples are doing. 
The statement about the ministry of Jesus is about his ministry in the present. The time, it's fulfilled. In Jesus, the kingdom of God is broken in. And this really is a statement about the divinity of Jesus Christ. Uh, All of the imagery of the uh, groom uh, in the Old Testament, the groom and the bride of the groom, that's imagery uh, not uh, specifically tied to the Messiah. It's imagery about God. Jesus is saying right here, he's saying, I'm that bridegroom and I'm with my people. Well, that's... That's asserting divinity. That's pretty remarkable that Jesus would do that. It's really a statement also about the gospel itself. The degree to which the guest of the groom is willing to celebrate is the degree to which the guest understands something special about the groom. This groom is God. And what that means is that uh, when you are present uh, with this groom, well, your ability to celebrate hinges upon what you understand about that groom. This would have resonated automatically. Everyone would have gotten this. That makes sense. Even if it was offensive that Jesus was asserting that he's God and that because he's with his people that that, uh, to fast would be something that would be absolutely uh, unacceptable. But Jesus goes on and he gives two two parables. These are actually the first two parables that show up in Mark's gospel. And the parables tend to be, on on the surface, pretty confusing, but I think I can make them simple. The parables are really about mixing the old and the new and what happens over time if you continue to do that. Mixing the old and the new and what happens over time. The parables are familiar. Mending a robe and storing wine. Those things would have been well understood by the audience of Jesus. And both of them are placed together because both of them are telling us the same thing. In verse 21, to repair an old garment requires some new garment to cover it. But if it's not done correctly, you're not repairing the garment, you're destroying it. And then both the new garment and the old garment is destroyed. Do you see that in the passage? Mending an old garment with new fabric and doing it improperly, it's going to actually destroy both. And the same, it carries through in the illustration about wine. To store new wine is going to require new wineskin. And if it isn't done correctly, then you're actually not storing the wine. You're destroying both the wine and the wineskin. Both the new wine and the old wineskin will be destroyed. When you put new wine in an old wineskin, new wine, it expands. And as it expands, it actually destroys that wineskin. The primary focus here is the destructive result of mixing things together that shouldn't be mixed. You try to blend the new and the old in the wrong way and you destroy both. You set out to repair and you end up with destruction. You set out to store and you end up with destruction. It would seem to be that in the same way Jesus is saying that blending the expected Judaism of the day with the good news of the gospel can be some pretty dangerous business. The Judaism of the day was actually uh, a message that was a contrary gospel, a different means of being reconciled before God. But the truth of the matter is, blending any human expectation with how to approach God and attain peace with, uh, with the gospel, that's going to yield our destruction as well. Any syncretism between our method of salvation and God's method of salvation Well, it might make you feel good for a moment. It might match your intentions. 
It might make you look good before others. But Jesus is saying that it's destructive. One commentator says it this way, for those who uh, refuse to follow Jesus, the message is this, mixing your own agenda for salvation with Jesus' agenda for salvation is going to make you feel well, but it's going to lead to your destruction. There's only one way to be saved before God, and that's the gospel, which means any method that you have, it needs to go away. That's what repentance is. There's a message for disciples. The message for disciples is this. Will you daily submit your whole agenda to me, says Jesus? Or will you just make a little room for me in your agenda as the day goes by? It's almost as if Jesus is saying to the disciples, I own your agenda, not just today, but forever. I own that agenda. Are you trying to mix your plans with my plans. You see, there's a, a bit of a terror for those who are not believers, a reminder that all of their plans, well, lead to nothing. But it's discipline. It's, it's a message of love and care for those of us who are believers to remind us that our life is a life that we live because of the precious blood of Jesus, and that he is my Lord and my King, and I belong to him, not even to myself. That's an expectation that needs to be shattered. You see, the good news of the gospel is that God's grace absolutely destroys any contrary means of attaining closeness to God and peace and life. And we think that the gospel is a lot like uh, any other means of gaining peace and life. But it isn't. It's radically different. So let me finish by just uh, saying this. It's, it's actually normal for fallen humanity to yearn for peace and some kind of closeness to God. It's actually appropriate that we would yearn uh, to have some kind of closeness with the divine. God, in fact, has made us to worship. That's been uh, stamped upon our very nature, whether we're believers or not. It's normal for fallen humanity to yearn for peace that lasts. But by default, what we end up doing is we think that we can attain that peace and closeness on our own terms. And if we fail to catch this until our deathbed, well, Jesus has a message for us. If we uh, yearn for that peace without Jesus Christ and we don't catch that even on our deathbed, well, the garment is ruined and the wine is wasted. That's the destruction that Jesus is mentioning. But if we understand the expectation-destroying goodness of the gospel, if we understand that the gospel is like a message we've never heard before, if we truly understand that the authority that Jesus has and the message that Jesus offers destroys every single record of our own personal expectations about who Jesus is and what it takes for salvation, if we understand that, well, then we're understanding that he is God and that he has come close to us and that he has done everything that's necessary for our salvation. And when we understand that, our fallen nature and our desperate need is revealed clearly before us. We see it face to face. And closeness with God and everlasting peace is actually given to us as a free gift. All of our expectations are crushed by the gospel. Let's not be then 
the kind of people who excuse ourselves for mixing the gospel with my own plans. Let's not be the kind of people who turn the gospel uh, into uh, a little bit of a souvenir or a trinket from the time of my conversion. This gospel crushes every expectation. And as we see that in the message of Jesus Christ, then the party really begins, and then the party will, be, will last for all eternity. It's really astounding that both of these passages take place in the scene of celebration and delight. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It destroys any competitor gospel. Well, would you join me as we close in prayer? Our Father, thank you for saving us in this gospel. You are good to us. Your richness to us in Jesus should stagger us. Would you forgive us for being bored, for passing over your word and your message? Would you forgive us for thinking that there's no way you'll dislike our plans? They're that good. Thank you for the expectation-destroying gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.